welcome. My name's Stephen Dickens, and I'm the host of the I'm a Mainframer podcast, brought to you by the Linux Foundation's collaborative project, the Open Mainframe Project. I've got today a fantastic guest. I've got Mark Neft. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so, Mark, let's dive straight in here. Let's get our listeners orientated. If you can give us a little bit around your background, what you do for EPAM systems, and, and really just get the listeners orientated, and then we'll sort of dive in from there. Yeah, I'm Mark Neft. I'm our CTO of Platform Modernization. I work with clients to help them remodel the house where they live in it. So helping clients figure out what they have, use the source code, using their infrastructure to understand the facts, and help them build roadmaps into where they want to go and how to get there while they're continuing to use it and continuing to enhance it uh, from that perspective. So I've built a series of tools and other capabilities to understand what's around the mainframe and become self-sufficient very quickly. And how long have you been with the mainframe platform, Mark? I mean, the show's called I'm a Mainframer, so let's get that out of the way straight away. Well, funny enough, I didn't start on mainframes. Um, I started on Linux and Unix back in the 80s. Um, so I've been doing mainframes since the late 80s, so I don't know, 40 years. That counts. That's enough, to, that's enough time to turn up on a podcast and claim you're a mainframer, I think. So just want to take you back something you mentioned, renovating the house while you live in it. I think the conventional wisdom is rip the house down and start again and build a new house. Just let's play with that analogy for a moment. Why do you believe it's the right thing to do to renovate it while you live in it? And I'm well, not saying it's not, by the way. Obviously, well, I'm not, yeah. but I'm, I'm keen to get your perspective. Well, most organizations can't afford to stop their business and go build a new house and move it. There's a lot of risk. And what we find is a lot of organizations oversimplify um, how easy it is to replace what they have and they end up in the worst situation where they build a new system, they get 80% of the functionality moved. Now they have two systems, one that's supporting 20% of the business that costs the same amount of money and another one now running in the cloud or wherever that's supporting 80% of the business and it costs the same, you know, and it costs, a, you know, a, a pretty penny to run as well. So now you have two systems you have to maintain and deal with all the regulatory instead of one system um, um, from that perspective. So that's what we see a lot of times is that they oversimplify and, and tearing down a house and rebuilding it with, with, when you don't realize, do you want a two-story? Do you want a ranch? You know, you want a three-bedroom, four-bedroom? If you don't understand that, you're going to end up with Frankenstein very quickly. And it's interesting you mentioned that kind of 80-20. I mean, we often talk, hear that <coughs> sort of percentage. Is that what you're seeing actually in reality? That it's easy to port the first 80% to something else, to replatform onto the cloud or to do something else. But that last 20% is the hard yards and that's where the project failures happen. 80, maybe it's 90, 10, but the last 10 to 20% are the killers because a lot of times it, it's not the, the current state and it's not the future state. It's that transitional state that everybody underestimates because they lose funding, people get impatient, they wanna go faster and, and so on. There's a lot of reasons, but the risk is all in that transitional state when you're not done with what you have and you're not ready to move everything to the new state, you have to be running you know, on all engines and all cylinders. Um, 
when you're in that transitional state. And that's why we remodel the house when you're living it, because you focus on plumbing and electrical. You make sure those are going to support when you go. And then you start remodeling the bedrooms and the bathrooms. And if you live in the Northeast, you do the kitchen in the summer. You understand what pieces to do when instead of trying to move to a new house, you know, you ever try moving, you know, build a new house and move, that's a pain in the butt. You know, you get so, comfortable with I mean, what you have. So right? when, you, when you're engaging with clients and they're looking at this kind of transition ahead of them, they're looking at the, what they're being told by the cloud providers and system integrators of this is a short, fast, programmatic shift that we've done hundreds of times, what are you saying to those clients who are looking at that and evaluating that journey? What's, what's the sort of talk track of, of your experience that you're, that you're able to convey? I mean, my experience is small things are easy to do. It's when you start looking, you know, take a step back. The mainframe, where it's very good, is lots of little applications that are hitting a common and a shared everything environment. That shared everything is really hard to pull apart. So don't underestimate, I'm working with a client, they got 40 million lines of code and 8,000 databases, and it's all tightly cohesive. So yeah, we find these little islands of, you know, five databases and 20 programs, they're easy to pull off. But when you have a database that's being hit by 37 different COBOL programs that are part of seven different application subsystems, where do you start? So talk me through that renovation task. Where do you start? How do you get going? Just really sort of frame that out for me, if you don't mind the pun, Mark. No, I don't mind. So when you look at renovating, you can, you can get immediate value day one because you can implement a microservices architecture in COBOL that can coexist with monolithic. So now all of a sudden, all your enhancements and your changes are done in a functional paradigm and those interfaces are protected and you can design them so they can change. So that if you change a function, you don't break the ecosystem. And what's pretty cool with the architecture that we do is these interfaces, if somebody's using an older version, it'll phone home and say, hey, this guy's using an old version. We're deprecating it. We're not going to abend him. We're going to tell you what module is calling us that's using the wrong interface. So that the code is protected and it's, we're future-proofing it so that we can change it without with backward compatibility without breaking the ecosystem. And it can coexist with your monolithic. So you get immediate value um, and you get agility relatively quickly. So you're, I mean, you're talking about what I think is object-oriented sort of code module methodologies. You're talking about microservices. Are you basically there saying, regardless of the language, the underlying language, those best practices still can be applied in a mainframe environment? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of object-oriented, but I use functional programming. So think of it as an old functional programming so that you're, I'm a math guy. So I think of things in functions and Lego blocks and these become Lego blocks that you can, re, you can glue together to build new business processes, but they're designed to be independent of each other. So this is modern programming methodologies applied to a COBOL system. And, and you're, I think what I hear you're saying is don't think that COBOL can't take you there it very definitely can. Would that be a fair summary? That's a fair summary. Yeah. Okay. So once you talk on, once you talk on these decision makers through that methodology, talk me through, if you don't mind, just a little bit about the project. 
you know, so the classic sort of five to seven year migration off the mainframe, what does the renovation look like when it's kind of still living in the house to continue to stretch this analogy? What does that renovation timeframe look like and what are the, the major tasks? Um, a lot of it has to do with data cleanup um, and creating landing zones, landing zones and funding zones so that you fund to a point of stabilization so that if you don't get any more funding or you can't do any more work, the organization is, is better off than it was before, but you're not in an unstable. So it's very important to fund to a zone. The, you know, where I look at this is the mainframe becoming an application server. It provides data, it does the business processing. Um, the UI UX is being serviced by you know, whatever, you know, whatever your, your, you know, Angular, React, Unify, whatever you want to do for your UI, decoupling that and creating that service entry points so that the mainframe is really an app server and a database server that can support multiple workloads working hand in hand. And that's where I look at it evolving and working with clients to make that happen. I think that's really interesting the way you describe it there fund to a sort of point where the platform's better. So I'm going to continue to stretch our, our analogy about house renovation. You can go do the kitchen, get the kitchen done, and you haven't touched the plumbing. You, you know, you've maybe not touched the roof or you've not touched the windows and you haven't done the upstairs bathroom, but at least the kitchen's better than when you started. You've not undertaken knock it all down and start again. You, you And then you can go back to those other rooms and kind of renovate forward. Is, is, that, is that the right way to think about it as, as you talk, think about sort of funding to a particular point? It, it is, you can preserve capital. And the other thing is, is think about if you have a family of four, do you really wanna take that disruption of tearing down the house, going and living in an apartment, the kids are disrupted from the neighbors, all of that is impacting the family while you're trying to rebuild and figure out what you want, where you've done the kitchen, now we can sit back and say, okay, the kids are going to become teenagers. What do we want to do? How do we want to redo their bedrooms? We can plan for what we, we can take the learnings from the first renovation and apply it to the next kids. So talk me through some of the, and, and you probably can't mention customer names, but just talk me through some of those projects where you've, you've taken customers on this journey, you know, what the before state looked like and what the, the sort of successful end state looked like. Um, yeah, I mean, the before state, is a lot of spaghetti. It's a lot of urban legend and nobody understands how it works. Going through the process, we not only create logical maps of how the organization, you know, how the code and the business are aligned. We're also creating business process flows of swim lanes and sequence diagrams so that the code becomes segmented and aligned to the different business groups that are participating. So there's clear demarcation of who owns what data, separations of duty between, you know, think about a bank, you could have loans, you could have retail banking, you could have credit cards. Those systems all work together, but they're separate. The data, the money laundering, and all those pieces are pluggable into the architect so that we've pulled it apart instead of everything shared, everything's still shared, but there's demarcations and there's managed interfaces between the data, and they can now evolve independently of each other. So the journey allows things to become independent. It also allows us, with this approach, 
to take advantage more of Linux on System Z than does ZOS. So that now we can, we can optimize for cost as part of the architecture where we can utilize ZIP engines, we can take the high availability of DB2 and ZOS. We can, you know, funny enough, you could get a higher availability when you use Linux going against, um, you know, a Sysplex uh, from that perspective than staying within the Sysplex. So there's some advantages architecturally by using the backplane and the different operating systems that you can, that are available to be able to get a robust, highly available solution that never has to go down. I mean, we do this where we've had clients that, you know, we needed to be able to demonstrate that we could upgrade it and change it at peak without losing any data. So being able to do those, you know, do a, you know being able to change the hardware without losing any data is part of the, you know, advantages of the, of the platform. So what's that enterprise? I can, I can imagine the enterprise architect community, they're kind of sold on everything that should be on the public cloud. They're kind of sold on modern languages. They want, you know, Ruby on Rails. They want Python. They want, you know, they, they want to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater and go everything new. You come in with this pragmatic conversation, and I'm, I'm playing almost devil's advocate here whilst agreeing with you, so this is an interesting dynamic. I'm having to don the cap of these enterprise architects. How does that conversation go? Let people in the room for a moment. How does the, the microcosm of that discussion go? Are, are they open-minded? Are they closed-minded? How's that going? They're very difficult, and they become interesting, and a lot of times people are afraid of what they don't know. And these are guys that grew up, you know, these are young architects. They have, you know, great insight to what can be done. They have great use cases of what can be built new in the cloud. The challenge is you have, you know, 20 million, 50 million accounts in this platform and you can't move them with a click of the foot, you know, you know, snap your fingers and they're moved. You have to build that evolution and, and you, you can't take years to go build a new house and then move it. Because if you go build a new house, by the time you build it, some of the things you've implemented will be outdated already. Because it's going to take you one to two to five years to build that new house. And if you're designing it based on today's needs, you're going to be five years behind everybody else by the time you get, by the time that house is finished. So Where, go ahead. So you've done a fantastic job of painting that out for me, Mark. Where does EPAM Solutions sit in? What are you? What's your role in that sort of that discussion? Where do you? Where does your your sort of company fit in? I mean, we help clients do the full digital transformation. So we will help them move things off the mainframe. We'll help them rebuild. You know, working with some retail banks right now and helping them modernize their COBOL and helping them do the design for change. We can, you know. We have engineers that are excellent in you know, the major cloud vendors. They, they know how to do the Java. And we, it's, it's not about one or the other. It's the coexistence and how to build that harmony between the right platforms for the right processes. Because some of the things that we find, and everybody wants to go to real time, but if you're ever working in banking, you need an end-of-day process. You have to close the bank and reconcile the bank every night. So. A real-time process is interesting, but that's not how the business works. It has to have a end of day. It has to have these certain checkpoints 
that validate that you're not overdrawn, you're not this, there's certain legal requirements that the mainframe can handle high volumes of high data that yes, you can do it in the cloud, but you gotta rebuild all that. It's there today. Let's just enable it to change it and expand it um, versus trying to move it off of something. And that's where EPAM comes in. That's where you guys fit in. You help yes. people through on that journey. Yes. So <clears throat> I'm assuming that you interact with the Open Mainframe Project through the COBOL working group. Would that be a fair assumption? It is. It's one piece of the puzzle. And where else are you working with the community? What's your kind of interaction with the, the Open Mainframe Project? We're doing a lot of work with Zoe. So being able to use Zoe to do all the automation under the covers so that you can use an Eclipse-based interface or Visual Studio to do all your DevOps and your development. Now I can take people who understand Visual Studios and you know, maybe Visual Basic or C Sharp within two weeks, I can make them comfortable to maintain COBOL programs because they understand the IDE and the tooling and the mainframe itself you know, it's just a, it's a server somewhere out there. Who cares where it is? So what's been your experience with Zoe? Um, it's been great. We've been able to automate it and we've been able to script and be able to, you know, do everything on the mainframe without actually having to connect to the mainframe, you know, without having to use a green screen. We, we don't use green screens at all. We use scripting and, we submit everything through CLI, the command line interface. Uh, we do a lot of Python. We do parsing and Python and all that. And we use Zoe, and Zoe um, to facilitate that. And is that helping in that conversation with the enterprise architect when you say, look, we're not asking you to become a COBOL expert and sit at a green screen. Does that help break down that barrier, Mark? It, it does a lot. It, it, it Showing them the tools that are available and the price point of these tools of being zero compared to some of the other, you know, the tools that they're spending a lot of money on, it, it opens, you know, it gives them instant savings. And does Zoe surprise them that there's open source on the mainframe? Because I think it surprises people when I talk about it. Is that your experience? It is. And, and there's also a lot of hesitation between the mainframe operations group and Zoe, we find, is because they're afraid to give up control. Do you Everything's think, magical do you, behind the covers before, before. Do you think that's improving with the conformance program and some of the support options that are now available for Zoe? It's kind of matured to the point where it's it's supportable code and something you can you can call the vendors and get support on. Is that helping, do you think? I think it's helping. And I think with a younger group of people coming in who are expecting these things, it's it's making, you know, organizations are having to deal with it. You know, onesies and twosies, they'll, they'll quash them. But when large number of people are looking for, hey, I can get this everywhere else, I'm going to move off the platform if I can't do this. It's a, you know, they need to be able to demonstrate from an operations perspective. Otherwise, they'll have zero survivorship because if they stay to green screens and lock the mainframe down um, at the development level, it'll become, you know, people will find a way to get off because they won't be able to do anything. I think that's a really interesting perspective. It's less about Zoe the technology; it's Zoe the perception that that creates in the of the platform. I, I think that's an interesting dynamic. 
Yeah, I mean, it opens it up so that, like I said, it, it, you, you don't know whether you're working. The mainframe is the last thing that you, you know, the only thing you realize is that it doesn't use forward slashes or backward slashes for directories. It uses dots. It's about the only thing you notice. Yeah, and that's not a big barrier for all the rest of the benefits that you get for the platform, right? Yeah, if that's the worst thing you have to worry about on training, then everything else is easy. So you mentioned that when we're doing the introduction that you've been with the platform sort of coming up on 40 years now, Mark. What what's what would advice would you give to your younger self? You've built a career, you know, you're now the CTO of this organization, EPAM Systems. What advice you get the opportunity to go back to your younger self, 22 years old, when you're finishing college? What would you say to yourself? What sort of what nuggets of wisdom would you have from the journey that you'd like to impart onto the to the younger Mark? Trust the science and trust the math. It will work out. Um, and, and don't forget the basics that you learned in computer science, right? Watch how it evolves and continue to learn. Um, languages, you know, I did learn a long time ago, you know, languages are important to tell the computer what to do, but you, if you use them properly, you can get them to do, you can get them to dance you can get your systems to dance. So, Mark, what career advice would you sell, give yourself so you've got the opportunity, as we say here, to go back to the 22-year-old self? What career advice? We've got a lot of younger listeners on the show. What would you be saying to those listeners? To the listeners today, um, study history of computers. Understand where and how things have evolved. Um, history has a tendency to repeat itself. Understand why DCE, CORBA, some of these bleeding edge things that were out there 30 years ago, where have they gone and why do we not see them today? Um, the mainframe has been able to withstand the, you know, all the other onsets and it has stayed true to being able to a powerhouse of high volume, large data and a consolidated footprint and highly secure. You know, it's important to understand, you know, history and why have things, what, what is, what, what technologies have failed and we no longer see and which ones are coming through and how do they compare to things that were out there 30 years ago? I think that's really great advice. The other question I ask all of our guests here, Mark, is we've just, we've just gone down memory lane and we've just gone backwards in time. You now get the chance to go forwards in time and look to the future. Where do you see the platform sort of five years from now? Um, I see the platform in the next, you know, I, I see it going more towards the open systems. I see a ZOS and Z Linux becoming more in harmony with each other. And going back to, you know, um, Joe Temple and some of his old papers and fit for purpose, understand what kind of processing you're doing where put the right kind of processing on the right type of platform, understand the big picture and what, what it is you're trying to accomplish. I think that's fantastic advice. I think that's fantastic advice. And I, I agree with you. That's where I see the platform going forward. Mark, well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I didn't think we'd spend as much time pulling apart that um, house as we did, but I think it was a good metaphor for the conversation and a good analogy. So thank you very much for the time on the call today. Thank you. You have a good day. 
Fantastic. You've been listening to Stephen Dickens. I'm the host of the I'm a Mainframer podcast. We've had Mark Neft, the CTO of EPAM Systems. If you like what you hear today, please click and subscribe. It really helps the algorithm. Give us five-star rating and ideally share this with your friends. You've been listening to the I'm a Mainframer podcast and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.